Welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Clark, and thanks again for uh, tuning in to my podcast. I uh, hope you enjoy the show. Once again, I'm uh, very fortunate to have friends and colleagues like my guest today, the legendary Dick Gould of Stanford Tennis. I'm sure when, uh, when all is said and done in this uh, time we have, you'll gain a ton of insight, some history along the way, and perspective on uh, the many areas of tennis with respect to coaching, parenting, and players. Um, and in tennis in general, um, there's a lot uh, that uh, you're going to glean from this. You know, introductions are important. And uh, one of the things, though, about introducing uh, Coach Gould is uh, it could take the entire show. So, so I'll go ahead and get started uh, before we run out of time. Um, you know, for for years, he was the coach of, uh, of Stanford Tennis uh, for 38 years. He's currently the John L. Hines Director of Tennis at Stanford. Uh, he oversees things like the WTA uh, events there, a phenomenal program with academic uh, tutoring for inner city youth, etc. Um, he was a graduate of Stanford in 1959. He also got his MA there in 1960. Um, as I mentioned, he was head coach for 38 years from 1966 to 2004, where he set the standard of college tennis in many ways, and we'll go into that later, but um, just in so many ways, he set the standard. Uh, he's the winningest coach at the farm with an 84% uh, <laughs> winning percentage. That's pretty amazing. 17 national team tamp- championships. Um, and like we usually say, enough said, uh, but it goes on from there. Uh, 10 NCAA singles champions, uh, seven doubles champions, 50 All-Americans, nine players in the top 15 at professional ranks, and 14 in the top 10 doubles. It goes on and on and on. Um, but one of the things is uh, Dick is a contagious leader, and this is the reason for his success. He is uh, habitually friendly. He's optimistic and congratulatory and just makes those around him feel important. Uh, so, you know, it's no wonder all the success follows. So without further ado... I'd uh, just like to uh, welcome Dick to the show. Dick, welcome, and how are you? <laughs> Steve, I don't know. I don't want to get you contagious here. <laughs> I'm going to be contagious. Uh, what a pleasure to be with you, Steve Clark. Uh, it's one of these things where when you ask, everyone comes through because everyone has so much respect for you and, and what you've done in tennis in general and college tennis in particular over the years. So it's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dick. I've got a question for you. I think a lot of people out there listening to this might ask this question. Um, those who don't know the history of Stanford, there's several logos and, and associations with Stanford, the Cardinal, the farm, and in the middle of the Stanford logo is a tree. So coach, what is the history behind those things? (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, the tree, uh, is a replica of the Sequoia Redwood tree. Uh, very common in Northern California in particular, and and there is one called El Palo Alto for which our city is named uh, on the one of the corners of Stanford property. 
and among other redwoods on property, of course. But this one in particular was called uh, El Palo Alto. Palo Alto is named after it, and Stanford took it on as, as their emblem. And it's remained such forever and ever and ever. Our name, the Cardinal, came about because at one point we were the Stanford Indians from time immortal on and, and in fact, had a... Uh, a uh, true tribal Indian chief who would come down and dance at our football games in full regalia and some of our basketball games, Prince Lightfoot. I happen to know him a little bit, uh, really a long shoreman in real life. It was an interesting thing. But then as the world became uh, more attuned to offensive uh, characterizations of different peoples around the world, uh, the American Native American Indian became one of these. And... Uh, Stanford dropped the name Indian from their logo and took the color Cardinal on. So we're now known as the Stanford Cardinal. We go back to the farm remnants, and Stanford oftentimes is referred to as the farm. Stanford was started in the late 1800s by a state senator, Leland Stanford, U.S. senator, who actually drove the Golden Spike to complete the Transcontinental Railroad in uh, Provo, Utah, and uh, a big person who did a lot of uh, breeding of horses and thoroughbreds, and his summer home from San Francisco was down here on his farm, and several world champion uh, racehorses were actually bred here at Stanford and raised on the farm. While vacationing in Europe with his family, his only child, a 14-year-old son, got typhoid fever and passed. At that point, he and his wife decided to open a university in his honor on the farm and then became the Leland Stanford Junior University. Wow. I've been coaching for uh, 30 years, and I didn't even know that history. So that's thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. I got a question here. Um, maybe a lot of people also know that many world greats have come from Stanford to play on the ATP Tour both in women's and men's tennis. Coach, what are some, off the top of your head, some of the uh, great uh, players that came from, obviously, Stanford and played? If you can maybe bring us uh, there's a whole wall out there. But I'm curious also, of those that, uh, you know, we have John McEnroe and, uh, you know, uh, Tanner and, you know, uh, Ted Schroeder. I mean, a lot of great players, and obviously the Bryan brothers now. I'm curious, out of those, which ones uh, actually went four years here and graduated that people may not be aware of? Interesting. Ted Schroeder uh, spent a couple of years at USC uh, and then ended up at Stanford and, and won the National Intercollegiate Championship here. Uh, I had the good fortune to get to know Ted before he passed, and and uh, he became actually a good friend. And that was a, uh, one of my pleasures of coaching, getting to know some of the old guys. Ted, of course, was the icon of them all. Uh but it's been fun working with all of them over the years. Guys like Roscoe Tanner, who helped build the program. His his attitude was infectious. He was recruited with the idea, infectious. He was recruited with the idea that he could be the one that would help turn this program around and make it into a, a, a model program. Uh, and so we had a really close second-place finish after my sixth year here at Stanford, and we were poised to 
win the championship next year with everyone returning. Roscoe, however, decided to turn pro at the Nationals. We had, at, in Georgia at the NCAAs, we had a long conversation, and the agents in those days were really after the college students and who were good players and trying to get them to turn pro before someone else got a hold of them. And Roscoe, was, having reached the NCAA finals twice and reaching the semifinals once, was in his first three years was talked into turning pro, and I can't say it was a bad decision because uh, he went out and did very well immediately, reaching the finals of Wimbledon. This being Wimbledon week, it's it's rather uh, appropriate. Uh, lost a close match to Bjorn Borg, but Roscoe and with Sandy Mayer the next year who turned pro a year early, and with some others, they would get ahead in school. We're on the quarter system, so it's fairly easy to do. And Roscoe, as an example, even though he turned pro and could not play in his fourth year, his senior year, he did come back to Stanford and graduated on time with his class and played, took the winter off, played uh, Bill Reardon's old uh, winter circuit in the East, but came back in the fall after the summer circuit uh, as a pro, finished his class in the fall and in spring quarter, as did Sandy Mir the year after that. Uh, I figured, well, there goes Roscoe. There goes a chance of ever winning, winning a national championship. But Sandy Mayer and some of the other guys stepped up uh, big time, and we did win it the next year. And I thought I'd gone, <laughs> died and gone to heaven. In fact, it was really a largely an ego trip at the time for me because I really wanted to prove that Stanford could win a national championship. We weren't very successful in any sport at the time. I think in 1950, we won the a Golf Championship for men. In 1960s, we won... 1967, actually, we won the NCAA uh, Swimming Championship for men. But uh, Stanford was the next team to win a championship, and we managed that in that decade, the 70s, to win four tennis championships. So I was really proud of that. And once we won the first one, I kind of got the ego thing off my back. It, it it made me a better coach because I coached not to prove we could do something, but I could relax a little bit and concentrate just simply on trying to make the players better and getting them to try to improve a little bit each day. And, and, and that... I think make it a lot more comfortable for them and kept the pressure off them rather than saying, we have to do this guys. We can do it now. We're going to win this. We, you know, not just talking to them as human beings and, and young people and, and having them try to get better and work on the process rather than the outcome. Well, that actually leads into uh, some of the questions I have because uh, one of the characteristics, I mean, having won 17 national championships as a coach, competing or coaching against Stanford, one of the characteristics that I always noticed was that it was the composure of the players, just uh, the steadiness. And um, I know that, uh, or at least I've heard that one of the rules you made is that uh, players couldn't even duck the bill of the hat. They couldn't put their head down and shame the Stanford hat. Is that true? (laughs) Well, I don't know that we ever said those words, Steve. I, I, I think, first of all, you mentioned uh, some national championships. I must say that I, as a coach, didn't hit one ball in those championships. I was lucky to recruit some very outstanding young men. It's it's very difficult to get into Stanford. You have to be an outstanding student, take difficult courses, AP courses, and do well in them, do well in your test scores, with no exceptions. And uh, so it really cuts our pool down of, of applicants, uh, realistic applicants, by a great deal. Uh, so a lot of the people I get, they're all, all high-class people, and and the admissions office kind of weeds those ones out who aren't, uh, regardless of their academic record. So I'm given a bless, I'm blessed to be given a tremendous student-athlete to begin with, a very rare individual, he's used to competition, he's used to putting it all on the line in academics, 
used to doing several things at once, used to working under pressure, whether it be in test situations or in academic situations, as well as in athletics. And that gives me a real advantage, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, these are still kids, however, and I, I learned early on in my career that if you set a rule, it's made to be broken by some reason that you didn't expect. So I got away from giving rules. I think the couple of things I always insisted upon, number one, is that they be on time. And if they weren't going to be on time, is they let me know ahead of time because nothing worse than having a practice mapped out for every 15 or 20-minute interval with certain people playing with certain people and rotating up and mixing it around and then have someone not show up or show up late and it affects the whole practice. So being on time, whether it be for a trip or for practice, uh, uh, unless they let me know, was really important to me. Uh, another thing was to be thinking always ahead and not backward. And, of course, that's one advantage to college coaching. You can talk to a player while he's playing. Little things, like I'd watch a player in warm-up, whether or not they were moving their feet in a big match. If they looked sluggish in warm-up, it meant they were scared. And I would right away say, let's get your feet moving, or something of the sort. I think all coaches look for that just naturally in warm-ups with any person, in college or otherwise. Uh, but another factor that really showed that they might not be focusing on the job at hand, meaning the point ahead, would be how they carry themselves on the court, from their posture to whether their head's down or up or the look in their eye or whatever. And, and I think that it's really important to instill, as a coach in any sport, the thrill and the challenge of looking ahead and not looking back because it can drag you and the team down uh, dramatically if that happens. So so trying to look positive on the court, uh, being positive, if someone starts to wander a little bit uh, in coaching, I would simply say, where well, are you going to serve this ball? Or on the second serve, kick it up to his backhand or play this point down the middle or shrink the court up or get in quicker or stay back a little bit and slow it down. I would give them something to think about, which forces them then to concentrate on the present and not what happens if they finally win this point and beat this guy for the first time. Their ranking is going to go from 20 to 10 or whatever it might be. So coaching in college tennis, being able to coach, I think is really, really important and a real positive way to teach them uh, this valuable lesson, which will stay with them all their life, focusing on the hand, on what's at hand rather than off into the future. Well, that that actually leads. I'm going to skip ahead. I had a few questions, um, but I'll come back to them um, on your coaching, um, some aspects of it. But one of them is your on-court coaching. I noticed, uh, you know, some coaches are uh, re uh, really proactive on the court, talking a lot, high energy. I found that you were uh, you kind of laid back a man of few words, you would come in and say something. I think uh, Whitlinger would take notes. I mean, people have different styles. And a question I have is what, uh, maybe it's a two-part question. What is your coaching philosophy overall? And when you were on court, uh, did you have a, uh, you know, a general philosophy that you felt um, that you, that kind of characterized you? Well, I think the important thing is that, that as teachers, uh, first, we all have a responsibility to uh, take our subject matter and find out what button to push to teach that will we believe in to a particular student. Everyone is different. And I would say that it probably is a strength of mine that I was able to be flexible and adapt to individuals and, in the most cases, find the right button. Uh, I think when you start out in coaching, you know, it's impossible to know it all. We all, we all learn things from different people. I learned every day from 
the parents of the kids I coached from their coaches. I actually searched out their advice, not only in what they're working on, but, but how they were doing it with their pupil who now was playing for me. Uh, I would ask the players, are we hitting the right button? Are we doing the right thing? Uh, is this what you think you need? If not, let's talk about it. Um, I, so it was really important to communicate that way and, and be on the same wavelength with your pupils. Uh, I I was more successful with some people in reaching them than with other people. Uh, some people you say very little to. I, I think, contrary to what you just said, I think in general I probably was as vocal on the court as anybody, and and even in practice, I probably drove my kids crazy because almost every ball they hit, I was telling them to do something or congratulate them what they did or say do something different. And I wasn't shy about yelling off three, across three or four courts to talk to someone I couldn't get to immediately to get the point across. Um, this stage in their development was so important to me. I think that philosophically, my I would say my my whole emphasis was on being proactive and making them re- your opponent react to you rather than you react to them. And fortunately in those days, there was a style of play that that led to, which was serving volley and attacking second serve returns. And uh, so I really insisted that everyone I had become a serving volleyer. And I only had a couple of players come to Stanford who did not, who were, who were natural serving volleyers. Sandy Mary was very a very good serving volleyer. Jimmy Grab is the other one. Um, Jimmy went on to be number one in the world in doubles three different occasions. And uh, even John McEnroe preferred in those days to stay back rather than come in. And I, I had just told him I want him up at net all the time as soon as he could with those great hands and his great reactions. Amazing. But a lot of these kids didn't have the, the net the skills around the net to be able to do this. You know, they don't get their growth till they're 15 or 16 in most cases, some of them even later than that. And you first of all win matches by staying back and hitting one more ball in the box than the other guy. You're basically pushing. And as you get better, some players get out of that comfort zone and some some don't. And so the players that came in who weren't out of that comfort zone yet were strong enough by now, by 18 or 19, to be able to learn a different style of play. And so it was really important for me and my philosophy of coaching to force them to serve in volley uh, by the kinds of drills we did in practice and and force them to do so in matches and, and uh, until they got comfortable doing it. And it was really a great one of the great joys of coaching is when you're trying to get someone to do something different or play a certain style of play, and they start to do that before you could even say what you want them to do. And this usually, for me, uh, took me about a year and a half or two years to have a player start playing the style of play I wanted to play and I would start to say something to him, and he'd already be doing it. So as time went on, I spent, by the junior and senior year, I spent less players, less time with those players and the new players coming in who was trying to get to adapt, adopt to this certain philosophy. Uh, philosophically also, I think there's another thing really important in sport today. Uh, tennis is not an island. Uh, all sport, I think, are really dealing with behavior issues, uh, model issues, we have our young people now not necessarily getting the right feedback from what is called sport. Uh, it it uh, it's a tough situation because I I firmly believe that pressure can bring out the best or the worst in a person, and we have such responsibility as coaches, whether it be as of coaches of teams or coaches of individuals or young people, uh, that they 
that they understand that it is a game and it's to be honored and respected and that their opponent is to be honored and respected. And yes, they're playing an opponent, but even more importantly, they're playing the ball and, and it can't get personal. Uh, I was very quick to overturn line calls. I was sure my player had missed. I had to be completely sure I lose that player lose credibility, credibility in me, in me in a hurry. But uh, I, I really felt that the way a player acted on the court was symbolic of his family upbringing, uh, what I was teaching him, what the university stood for. And I really hoped that when we played opponents, they had respect for the way we did our business and the way we carried it on. If we won, that we won with humility and and class. And if we lost, we lost the same way. And uh, I... I, I I hope we set that standard. I hope my players believed in. I think most of them did a very good job of this. Well, to that end, um, uh, Paul Goldstein had said yesterday, uh, he's the new head coach of uh, Stanford, he was telling the campers that uh, the one thing you taught him, of the many things, but the one thing that resonated significantly was win or lose, uh, you do it with class and you do it the right way. So you clearly taught that lesson. Well, Paul is, Paul is a pretty unique example. I mean, there's a guy with a tremendous family, great parents, uh, brothers, and and you know it all does start with the parents. And uh, I don't get out and watch junior tennis much anymore, but uh, from what I hear, it can be a little bit tough out there with line calls and parents getting involved in the matches that their kids are playing, and and it's really a sad state of the sport. I'm very active in a group called Positive Coaching Alliance, a nonprofit that is nationwide, and uh, its its job is as an advisory board member that I, I know well of its goals and so on. But basically, it's to encourage coaches at all levels in youth sports. So many times in soccer and little league and pop Warner football, what have you, volleyball, we have uh, temporary coaches. Even in schools now, you don't have a full-time staff member who has the school philosophy in his head and in his notebook. Uh, these are part-time coaches hired to come in and coach the team, and and they really sometimes don't have the perspective of, of the game in the right mode. So Positive Coaching Alliance, which has a, a loose affiliation with the USTA, uh, tries to train these coaches, whether they be in youth sports, uh, in tennis, for example, by giving clinics, certifying them, and so on by their staff to respect certain values and certain procedures in each sport that are, are universal. And I think tennis really needs it. I think the hard part is that I don't think Posse Coaching Alliance or the USTA has quite figured out how best to take advantage of the kinds of things that they do teach and, and whether to require uh, before a player plays a certain number of junior tournaments, maybe even before the first one, require a parental uh, seminar or something, a group seminar or something of the sort. I think these kinds of things are becoming more and more important in our game. And, and uh, uh, it's really important in all sport, but I think tennis especially right now is going through a hard time. Thank you. Uh, Dick, one of the things related to that, um, you're you're uh, providing me easy segue from question to question, um, is, you know, in healthy competition, because I'm a firm believer, I, 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 I've been finding lately that the original intent of competition from the Latin, competere is the idea that you, along with somebody, strive for excellence. And you see it in great matches where players hug each other afterwards and they know, man, that was a battle. 
and they respect each other. They respect the sport as opposed to what you said earlier about this personal thing and you're hooking me, you're doing this. And to really compete at the right level in the right way is to say, look, I'm, I'm doing this to get better. Um, and you're, you're, uh, you know, whether you're winning or not is your opponent is helping you do that. And I'd like to find out what are ways that you think, I mean, you mentioned this positive coaching Alliance as a coach though, what would you might suggest to coaches out there, parents and even players and, uh, that they could do to combat this or to maybe just like on the court, we got to practice forehands. Well, we got to practice our coaching. We got to practice our positive um, perspective of competition what would be some things you might suggest well first of all the the coach or the person who is acting as coach has to be the example and and if i grow up and shake the opposing coach's hand after a match we've won or lost and congratulate him and wish him luck i expect my players to do the same thing with the opposing team and if i do it they're more likely to do it if i don't do it they're not going to do it uh, nobody is perfect. Uh, players make mistakes in line calls. It's inevitable. Uh, honest mistakes. Linesmen don't always get it right. Uh, I, I think that one thing we can do, uh, well, let me give you another example. Uh, John McEnroe, uh, he was only at Stanford for one year before he turned pro. He reached the semifinals of Wimbledon before he entered Stanford. Uh, we didn't, I tell you, I, he played all summer all spring and I, I before he came to Stanford so I gave him the fall off and, and told him I didn't even want to see him on the court just get used to school and settled in and then we started our practices in January and uh, we didn't have umpires too often in those days and so you know he didn't have a chance to get mad at any umpires or upset and the pressure was building as we got closer to the nationals and, and umpiring wasn't really as good as it was today they weren't paid umpires they were professors or someone who played tennis on the weekends, the coach asked to come out and sit in a chair and say the score. But as we got into the Nationals, the pressure was building on John. Uh, he'd lost a couple singles matches during the year, but he was the favorite, and it was building on John, and by the time he got to the Nationals, it was really hard for him. The pressure was such, uh, he was really feeling it, and uh, he wasn't a good soldier out there, and I had to make a choice. Do I let him stay in the tournament, or do I pull him out? And I probably would have pulled him out in almost all circumstances, but he had done a good job all year long for me. Uh, we now were in the individual tournament. It was his tournament. Uh, was there any redeeming good that would be done? And this is what thoughts were going through my mind while he was playing by pulling him out while then keep playing. And I stayed with him. I'm glad I did that. Not so much that it gave a championship to him, but I felt it was the wrong time and wrong place. It was just my gut feeling to make a statement, uh, and I did not uh, do so. I think uh, as you watch John when he played Borg, I, I loved the way they competed, and John had a tremendous amount of respect for Bjorn Borg and vice versa. They loved their competition together, and they always knew it was going to be a battle, and they had tremendous respect for each other, and I don't think you ever saw John get upset any period of time in a match with Bjorn. Uh, our examples in tennis, there's some great ones out there right now. Roger Nadal and Roger, uh, Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. And who can forget uh, the Federer-Walensky match? Uh, these, these examples of sportsmanship are too rare today, but they are great ones, and they're the ones that should be emphasized and pointing out, pointed out in the post-match uh, interviews with a Federer or a Nadal 
uh, it's contagious with the other players, too. You're seeing more ownership of this kind of behavior taken on by the other top players because the top two at that time at least were setting this example. And I think these are the things we have to point out to our kids. There's enough bad in sport that you read about in the papers each day from drugs to uh, from drugs to cheating to in other ways, uh, in competition or otherwise, looking for the advantage, and we sure don't need that in tennis. I, I agree 100%. Um, I've got a question backing up a little bit, and it kind of over uh, overshadows all these questions, is uh, what would you say are some of the key characteristics of a great coach or mentor, whether he's in a club pro, uh, you know, uh, a private coach, high school, but especially at the, uh, at the collegiate level, what would be an example of a great or characteristics of a great coach for you? Well, I, I think one thing that I learned early on when I was coaching high school football, as a matter of fact, was that uh, you have to be yourself. I, I could not be a Vince Lombardi as an example, a real taskmaster, if that wasn't my personality. And I won't go into it now, but often in talks, I'll give the analogy that uh, the example that uh, I had that really taught me that quickly. Uh, first of all, you have to be yourself. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be continually working on improving yourself, not only as a coach in terms of what you're learning and about the sport, about how to teach the sport, about how to deal with individuals. But I think that because you're always learning, but so many other things it pertains to as well. Uh, I would take it away from teaching right now and coaching a team sport, I'd take it in the world of business. Uh, you don't see, you have to learn to function under pressure. You have to learn to do your best in, in the business world, in a courtroom if you're an attorney, uh, in a classroom if you're in a teacher. You have to always be prepared. You have to give your best and you have to you have to be best your best under pressure. And that beautiful part is that's the kind of thing sport can help you prepare for in the future. And that's why it's so valuable, especially if you do it with the right, with the right attitude in terms of improvement and getting better. I think uh, for me when I started out, I was too result-oriented. I think I was a much better coach when I started being more improvement-oriented. Uh, everyone, I can't tell someone how to coach. I couldn't. I couldn't. If someone asked me one day, they said, "Dick, why? What have you done that has?" let you win these national championships. Well, number one, I had great players, but they're all different. The teams are all different from year to year. But I really honestly could not answer my friend. I, I did not know, uh, and I still can't pinpoint what I did or if I did anything or what it was. I, I, if I did and could write down the the magic potion, uh, I could write a bestseller because we're always searching for that in any sport or in anything we do. Uh, first of all, be yourself. You have to be enthusiastic about you. You have to, about what you're doing. You have to love what you're doing. You have to love challenges. You have to love working with people. You have to really enjoy the thrill of watching someone perform at the highest level when they have to. Uh, it's easy to do it when you don't have to, but you've really done a good job if you can teach your people to uh, not necessarily win, but perform at the highest level, whether it's winning or not, when the pressure is on. Uh, how you do that with a certain individual, there is no, no set way. Some guys you, you tell a joke to in the changeover. Uh, other guys, you, you try to get them a little more focused on what they're going to do. Uh, I, I, I think it really is an individual thing, and I think the best coaches know that and are always looking for ways to improve how they communicate what needs to be communicated to a certain individual. It doesn't even have to be during a match. It can be just working on a technique. 
the kid the kid may be having a lot of success, and he says, well, why should I change my uh, my grip or the toss or the backswing on my serve? I'm already beating these guys. Uh, I'm already number five in the country in college rankings or whatever it might happen to be. I just won Kalamazoo. Why should I change? But there are always things to improve, and a good coach is able to get them to buy into those changes, how subtle it might be in technique or in tactics. It's great advice. Curious, having dealt with, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you know, creating or being part of, as you uh, said, uh, you know, you're fortunate to have these players, but the first national championship for Stanford, and after that, setting a legacy. Um, did you have players? I'm sure, like any player has had the experience of being in a slump, struggling to hold leads, or choking. When that happened. What did you say or do or not say or not do? Again, I think it depends on the individual. And even as coaches, we're not at our best every day. Uh, we just don't want our team ever to know that. <laughs> we don't want them to know that we had no sleep the night before because we're worried about how the match was going to go. Or we got in an argument or discussion with our bride or something of the sort. We have to, when we walk in that gate in the tennis court, we're all focused on the duty at hand. And if the coach is not, the player is not going to be. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing for a coach is players play not, tend to play not to lose. They tend to play to protect a lead, and they forget what got them there. They forget that being aggressive, if you wish, and if that was your style of coaching or style of play, that's what got you there. You tend to revert back to trying not to miss, and they forget to go for it within their within their own parameters, within their own abilities to play aggressively. Uh, I, I think it's really, really important that, of course, we have to know our players very, very well, but being able to coach them during a match, if you see them getting tight, uh, that's because they're losing their focus. They're thinking about what's going to happen if they win this point or if they lose this point uh, and how it's going to affect their plate ladder and the place on the team, how it's going to affect their national ranking in juniors or in ITF, if you wish, or in the pros or in, in college. And as soon as you start thinking like that, uh, you're dead. I think uh, I was very good at, and I use a lot of different ways to do it, from almost physical brutality in some cases. I don't know whether I'd be coaching today or not, but <laughs> whatever it took to get some of the focus on the job at hand and not play and to get them from playing not to lose. My style of play made it easier because, you know, in an attacking game, if you stop attacking or – uh, it's pretty easy to spot. So, it was a, but you see players now hanging back when they get the short ball. They're reluct- they don't take the first short ball. They get to come in. They're playing too far behind the baseline. They don't step up the line or move. They move laterally, okay. But they don't move up and back, okay. I'm talking moving five feet inside the baseline, moving five feet back, and coming back to the baseline after each shot. Most most of the young players we get, uh, especially in the last years of coaching, were just playing too far from the baseline. The first thing I had to do is get them back up on the baseline, whether it be return to serve or what have you. Great. Thank you. How would you, this is a three-part question, um, but how would you define success? And then how would you go about attaining it and measuring it? Because we can have an idea of what something is, but if we don't measure it, we don't don't have a way to adjust to attain it. So how would you define it and go about uh, measuring that? Well, success is really whether or not you're meeting a goal. And I'm not a big goal guy. I, th- I think you can set goals that are way too high, and that destroys everyone. Uh, 
I, I think that stepping stone goals are much better. You're working in tennis. It's, it's not like swimming. I had two kids who were daughter and son who were All-American swimmers in college, and and they have a real advantage in that sport. I mean, the disadvantage, of course, you were getting up at 5 in the morning and looking at a black line underneath you and freezing outside and keep looking at line for an hour and have a practice. Uh, but the advantage swimming was you could lose every is that you can lose every race and still better your time and feel good about yourself. There's a major other than an opponent uh, that you have. In tennis, you don't have that. And it's very difficult to have someone buy in consciously or subconsciously that uh, if if they turn a little more in their forehand or a little, little more in their back foot or uh, stay through the ball a little longer on their follow-through or change the grip a little bit more to the left or the right, that those changes are going to affect the results in time. And all those little things you don't see right away, they add up in time. And that's what makes coaching tennis so difficult is that those things, the kids measure their success by beating Johnny for the first time and having never beaten him before or their lack of success by losing to Johnny for the first time, having beaten him every time before, uh, or moving up from number four to number two in the ladder. Uh, the kid might have improved a tremendous amount, but a better group of freshmen come in, and all of a sudden he's playing number six or fighting for his start, spotting, uh, fighting for a spot. And you're telling him he's getting better? He looks at you like you're crazy. Well, Coach, I'm not getting better. I'm six. Last year I was number three. Or I just lost to Johnny. How can you say that? And you, then you have to go back and tangibly point out, well, look at this in your forehand, or how about your second serve, or how you played this point, your style of play. Uh, you define success in terms of improvement of the parts rather than in terms of winning a tournament or winning a championship. I think it's really important in all of our life and everything we do. And we're all, we'll all function better under pra- uh, pressure when that happens, when we can buy into that. It's great advice. Related to that, in college uh, coaching, um, you know, as recruiters and, you know, a coach is a recruiter, he's a psychologist, a mentor, a surrogate parent, a scheduler, a travel agent, he's a driver or she's a driver. Um, There's all these hats that we wear. Um, Can you maybe mention or, you know, address the balance, anything that you would like to mention in your years of experience with all that? I mean, you know, some (laughs) programs have, you know, four, you know, they have their assistants, they have full-time assistants, they have all these resources, et cetera. But on the whole, you know, coaching is just a multifaceted, uh, you know, you're wearing 20 different hats at a time, but how did you balance or what would you say to maybe a coach coming up uh, trying to develop a program that balance issue. Well, first of all, I remember I was the most unbalanced guy in this earth. I think. <laughs> uh, as an example, uh, I started teaching high school uh, when I got out of Stanford, and I was, you know, you have to be at school a certain time and sign in at the desk and wear your coat and tie and do your stuff in a classroom. Then you go out on a court, and they had a sign-out period, but the coach could never sign out because the office was locked by 7 o'clock when you got done. Then you had to go home and prepare your lesson plan for the next day for whatever the course it was you're taking if you hadn't prepared far enough in advance. And, of course, first-year teachers can't do that so much. And then to make ends meet, you had to go to the club uh, 8 o'clock the next morning, teach till 8 o'clock at night on Saturday and Sundays to make the ends meet. And you did the same thing in the on the summertime. You get the club all <laughs> six or seven days, six days a week to teach, and maybe the seventh day running tournaments to get more people actively involved so they take more lessons and help support you. So... <laughs> So there was no such thing as balance in those days. Uh, I Next year, will be, uh, September, we'll start my 50th year here at Stanford uh, as uh, on, on the on the staff. 
and it's been a glorious 50 wow. years. And one of my one of my hopes is that they'll allow me at one of our coaches' meetings, which are monthly, is to take 15 minutes and talk on the topic about titled "This Is the Way We Were," and go back to Stanford 50 years ago when I started. Uh, we didn't have assistant coaches. Freshmen could not play in the varsity. So I had a freshman team, a junior varsity team, and a varsity team. They all played a schedule. Uh, freshman team, junior varsity team, mostly against JCs, even some high schools in those days, good high schools. Uh, all-star teams from different age groups in Northern California, junior vets, 35s, 45s, whatever. Uh, and I had my college, my varsity so I was coaching three teams at the same time, probably 35 guys. I had no assistants. I didn't have an assistant for my first 17 years of coaching. Uh, and I would tape. I, would, I had to learn how to tape angles so because we didn't have a trainer traveling with us. Uh, obviously, I was the bus driver. Uh, you, I was a psychologist, you know, sports psychologist. I was a counselor in terms of grades. We didn't have people helping the uh, students in terms of uh, their studies, uh, tutors or things like that. Uh, it was a whole different world. So I've kind of I've kind of grown up in two eras. And, and now when I hear coaches say, oh, my gosh, I'm stressed, I'm overworked, I kind of laugh to myself. I'm not a tennis coach. I'm talking about it in general. Uh, we had no budget, really. We had uh, uh, to do everything for ourselves. And that was one of the beauties about Stanford. We could – we could do things on our own that would help benefit our program. And I'm just as proud of the fact that at this point right now, uh, the earnings from our endowments uh, provide for my position, the director of tennis, provide for the head coaching position, fully pays for the assistance position, fully pays for all four and a half scholarships men are allowed to have. Those scholarships are like $64,000 a year the earnings on the money that's in the bank, so to speak, and pays for operating budget at the level that Stanford will fund sports like tennis. And in addition, we have a maintenance endowment of about $2 million that provides about $90,000 a year. We use about a little less than half the money it earns each year. So our program is probably one of the one of the very few, if not the only program in the country in any sport that is honestly and totally completely endowed. It's amazing. Uh, you look at our stadium out here, uh, we didn't get one penny from the university. We didn't get one penny from the athletic department. I had to raise every dime of this $20 million stadium and, and all the things that are in it. And uh, um, so we probably, in the last 50 years, raised personally about close to $40 million. That's just for the men's program, and, and I'm really proud of that. And But I must say I've been working at a place where they've allowed me to do that, and not all places do that. Um I think you run scared. You have to as a tennis coach nowadays. You know, programs are becoming extinct and they're dropping programs. This new power conference thing is going to really affect programs, not only in Division One, but it's going to trickle down. Uh, I, I think you have to – I saw a long time ago that we were an endangered sport and picked up on it early. And after about 15 years of coaching, I said, I better, be, I better get with it. I better start fundraising in, serious, in a serious mode. And so – it's not th- something you come in and do overnight. It's all based on cultivating relationships and uh, getting to know the community well, having the community respect what you're doing and trying to do, and and getting a little lucky as well. But uh, I think I think now our, our program is secure and will always be secure, at least at the level we're supporting and allowed to support it now. 
That's amazing, uh, and particularly having coached and uh, been involved in a lot of fundraising. For those of you listening, um, that's that's a significant uh, facet of uh, coaching, and what uh, Coach Gould has done here is, uh, for many years, has set the standard, um, and from which uh, a lot of, uh, or by which a lot of teams and programs have. Uh, that's been the litmus test for their development. Um, I've seen a lot of teams uh, basically have, have no program, and then all of a sudden they have uh, you know somebody come in and step up and donate a lot of money, and then all of a sudden they have a facility. But what coaches here is talking about is to me is amazing. It's just this relationship of many many years, and I mean just the uh, the juggernaut that's been created uh, based on that has been through a lot of hard work. And this dovetails into the actual next section I want to ask him because one of the biggest things about college coaching this year is fundraising. And I wanted to ask um, Coach a couple uh, questions based on this. Um, as uh, you've already addressed some of the issues, and I think this is a great, even a great segment for athletic directors, associate athletic directors, development people uh, to, uh, to listen in on because uh, Coach Gould has a lot of wisdom here. But for many years, as I mentioned, Stanford Tennis was the archetype for facilities and programs and having the endowment. Um, what are your principles in this emphasis or that you emphasize in this area? You know, for example, in, in friendship or friend raising or fundraising, um, are there any things that you really stress in this development area? Well, there are a couple of things I think that hold true in any case. Uh, first of all, we all have a base of support. And that base is right under our nose as our former players. And I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that almost every former player that I've had at Stanford has given back to the program financially, some more than others. But uh, that's a nucleus that, that we can't forget. It's right before us. And we have a job to be sure that everybody who receives a scholarship or even receives a new can of balls to practice with each day or every other day, whatever it might be, or receives a T-shirt or whatever that might be, uh, as a member of our team, feels that he has an obligation to pay something back. Um, as parents, we have an obligation to teach that to our kids. Uh, as coaches, we have an obligation to teach that to our, our playing kids. And and that's where you start. Uh, community relations is so important. And we're in a sport, fortunately, where a lot of our people who can help have played tennis over the years. It's not... Uh, uh, male and female. It's it's not sex limited. Uh, they like tennis. They're still playing it now. And so it's easy to host an event and get these people involved, getting them to know your players, getting them to know you. Uh, I think that's an important part. I, I rarely have specifically asked anyone straight up for money. I have a meeting uh, this next week. I'm going to ask someone for some money. But my my tact has really been much more indirect. Uh, I would print a flyer up, go down to PIP or one of the printing places, print up a little flyer. And in those days, my mailing list was only about 1,500 to 2,000 people. Uh, but I would write an order in every one of those flyers. And the flyer would describe what we're doing. And it would go out in the mail. I'd hand address every envelope, uh, stamp them myself. And take a whole weekend and write a one sentence one sentence note in every every flyer. Hope you can help, Dick. Thought you might be interested, Dick. Let me know if it's of interest, Dick. A little note like that in every flyer. And so it was very easy to avoid it or throw in the trash. I never put anyone in the spot. And uh, 
and I didn't make any direct asks. And it's amazing what comes of that. There's one thing as a fundraiser you learn. There's no such thing as a small gift. A $50 gift in the future could turn into a $5,000 gift, a $50,000 gift, a million-dollar gift. You don't know that. But people, you have to get people in the habit of giving. And I think as soon as someone graduates from school, it's every coach's responsibility to do all you can while they're in school to further, as soon as they graduate, it's a responsibility to give back. Well, you mentioned uh, in terms of the habit of giving, and I know um, I've seen the video, and if anybody's interested in going on to uh, the Stanford website, and there's a link uh, for uh, Dick's discussion of, of the Buck Cardinal Club, and most schools have obviously a, an athletic foundation. There's the Eastern Washington Athletic Found, uh, Fund for the, it's called the EAF at Eastern Washington, where I coach. Um, and every school uh, pretty much has that. Um, this is a, an amazing uh, history and uh, program that they have. And I'd like, uh, Dick, if you could maybe address that, because it's got some great history. And, and, and it's an encouragement to, to alumni everywhere and parents and coaches. And this is an, a phenomenal model, a concept, a philosophy of giving and uh if you could share with us, Coach. Well, it's a little hard fundraising because there, on the one hand, you want the dollar now. But on the other hand, if you have $10, instead of taking $10 or you can invest it, then you have a return on that investment of which you would use uh, maybe half of the return each year. And so you get a little bit wound up uh, in terms of money right now on the spot and endowment monies. And the best of all worlds, it's going to be endowment money, money that's always there. And uh, I... Uh, I I think that's I think that I think it's really important, Steve. Yeah, the the the, the Buck Cardinal. Club, I'm sorry, yeah, that's the Buck Cardinal Club. The Buck Cardinal Club is our scholarship. It was our scholarship arm. It was just for men at first with Title IX. They immediately got on it. They expanded to include women, much to the chagrin of many of the male donors. But it did work out beautifully, and it helped provide scholarship money. And in fact, uh, I must say that Stanford. I believe now Stanford almost every scholarship that we are allowed to have in every sport is endowed. So it's not just tennis. The Buck Cardinal Club has done a great job of this now since our scholarships are essentially endowed or are very, very close there too. And of course they are in men's women's tennis completely. You, you mentioned that your father gave a <laughs> dollar during the depression. It used to yeah. be called uh, the Buck of the Month Club and, and during the depression my dad just got out he'd been out of school about a year and they started soliciting him to as a former student athlete to donate pledge one dollar a month. Uh, for the Buck of the Month Club. That's how it got its name. But these were all scholarship monies until just recently. Now our scholarship is mostly endowed. So now the money is going toward other projects, operating costs as well. That's amazing. Just a buck. And, you know, as you mentioned, nothing is too small because of that the whole trickle-down effect and just relationships you well, build. Well, tuition was about $100 a year, too. So it's all relative. <laughs> it's amazing. A buck, a buck a month in the Depression was not easy. Yeah, it's all relative. For those of you just joining us, you're listening to the UR Tennis Network and Coach Steve Clark, Ph.D. show with guest Dick Gould, the Heinz Director of Tennis at Stanford University. I would like to acknowledge uh, Events on Fire. They offer complete event planning services for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Go to eventsonfire.com. Wilson Racket Sports. They're phenomenal, the number one leading tennis uh, company for many, many years, and the Eagle Athletic Fund, the EAF for Eastern Washington University, the team behind the teams. So we've, as a coach, we've heard about 
some of his philosophy and the blessings he said he's had in just the players and the people involved in the program, fundraising, being a sports psychologist, all facets of coaching, and just the tremendous history at Stanford. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and maybe talk about the players. Having coached just about every level out there, you've coached high school football, and uh, if I'm correct, high school tennis, and then up through, up through the years, you know, to some of the greatest players in the world. How has the game changed, Coach? Since you began, well, there, there was wood rackets. <laughs> I played with those fast myself. Course, fast course wood rackets. Uh, the, the biggest single thing I think has been the involvement of equipment and and playing surfaces, slower surfaces in general now, uh, leading to a little more of an all court game, or excuse me, a little more of a back court game. Uh, the strings holding the ball in the racket a little bit longer, so you have more spin. Uh, a lot more toss spin, a lot more spin being generated shots now, not so much as flat a swing as it used to be. Uh, the emphasis away from servant volley, more to backcourt play. I think now we are seeing a resurgence of players finishing that at the point at net quicker than there, there has been in the last 10 years. Uh, we are also seeing some guys going back to servant volley. I, I, even though the equipment had all changed and services had changed by that time, we tend to forget that Pete Sampras won his last uh, major championship serving and volleying in the finals over Andre Agassi on every point. And and people forget that because the speed of the court and the equipment of strings were the same then as they are now. That was when they had already changed, and he won it, the championship doing that, and people forget that. Uh, I've seen some great serving volley tennis in Wimbledon, uh, which I've watched a little bit this week. Uh, it's It's really... A thrill to watch that, but that is the change. And I, I think, I think the biggest thing we'll have to remember, you know, we're teaching a sport. We're not teaching life or death. We have a great opportunity to teach life, life lessons. Uh, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to work at Stanford for these number of years, and, and actually before that at Foto College, and and then not be high school. I've been very lucky to be a teacher for 56 years. Uh, and and I'm most of all, I'm thankful for the players I've had at all these levels. I'm thankful for the players I had at club sports. I can tell you some great great stories as a club pro of pupils I had, uh, funny stories, humorous stories. But we're, we're, we're lucky because we're working people when they're healthy, when they're happy. We're not seeing them when they're sick or when they have a problem in our lawyer's office or sick in a hospital. So we have a great advantage. Let's remember that and, and enjoy what we're doing. Steve, it's been a pleasure being with you today, and I really have enjoyed this opportunity. And, you know, it's people like you who are leading the leading the uh, charge and getting tennis out to the public and helping us all realize how fortunate we are. I, I thank you for all you've done in tennis and what a, and how much you've meant for me and um, our relationship has meant to me and how much it's taught me and how much you've taught me. Oh, I appreciate that, Dick. And um, if you don't mind, I just have a couple more questions. Absolutely. Okay. Um, because, you know, what you just said about the changes, what would you say to a young kids coming up? You know, my son walks by uh, Graham or the kids in the tournament, or I mean, in the camp here. What would you encourage them with the changes, maybe in the equipment or what? What would you encourage them both as a sportsmanship or the game style changes? What would be the key things you would want them to walk away uh, talking uh, with? First thing, I want, I, first thing I want to see is see a smile. I don't want to see a practice session where there's not a lot of smiling. And some laughter. I don't want to see it so serious in an academy or wherever it is that there's not that that feeling of happiness and fun. So, if it's not fun for you, forget it. Don't do it. It's a game. Uh, secondly, I I would really work hard as a pro teaching a development pro, pro coach, teaching young players to teach them uh, how to act around the net. 
confidence, even though they might not be strong enough or enough yet to come to net because they're going to pass too easily, to help them recognize how to move into a volley, how to cut the volley angle off, how to step up to the returns. I don't see players coming into net behind the serve return very much anymore. I think that's a tremendous lost art. Uh, up until pretty far advanced in the pros, pretty high ranking in the pros, the second serves are really atrocious in general, and I think they can be taken advantage of and put a lot, a lot more pressure and put on second serves. Um, I would still be being a dinosaur. I'd still be having all my players serve a volley at least half the time on first serves. I think it's a tremendous asset. Keeps their style of play in an attacking mode. So I would, as a coach, really recommend everybody to really develop the player's ability to move, recognize, and volley well, and hit over as well, recognize them around the net. Appreciate that. Championship characteristics. I remember when I played against you guys, I think uh, Patrick was on the team and uh, Gouldie. Um, and, uh, I, I'm, you know, I can, I can speak to what I would say, Hey, these, I can sense what a champion is like. And, you know, we read books about what are characteristic of champions, but I'm with uh, coach Gould and who's produced a lot of champions. And what would you say is the characteristic of a champion, tennis player, person, et cetera? Well, someone has earned respect to other people and for the right things, not for what he's been, what he's won at the way he's done his business, the way he's conducted himself uh, under pressure in all facts of life. And uh, I, I, life's short. I want to be around a happy person. If the person's not happy, I'm going to try to make him happy, try to make him lighten up a little bit, he or she. Uh, I have a, 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 a life, life is meant to be loved and enjoyed and lived and fully, and we do that by enjoying and liking people. They're not our enemies, people, even though they're our opponents and someone we want the worst way to beat in this particular situation. It, that's not the point. The point is having the opportunity to compete and what a blessing it is. That's our whole our whole American lifestyle is competition. And sport is one example of it, but we have to do it in the right way. You mentioned earlier along these lines that, you know, it's a trickle down. The coach is responsible to model it and obviously the parents what would you say to uh, parents and maybe a lot of parent coaches out there at all levels, um, maybe the things for them to focus on with their kids? And um, I would probably say uh, right off the bat, you, you, you're mentioning about the, the, the fun, the all that uh, aspect. Uh, but can you speak to that? Well, first of all, I put me in a heck of a position, Steve, because you had me following a week later after uh, Wayne Bryant, who's <laughs> one of my all-time heroes. And, and one of the things I admire most about Wayne and Kathy uh, is that they made the sport fun for their boys, for Bob and Mike. And it's always been fun for them. And that's a long, uh, big reason of their longevity. Uh, they did other things. They learned music. They did other things. Except they couldn't watch TV when the youngsters didn't have a TV in the house. <laughs> but, or play video games. But uh, it, I, I have so much respect for Wayne and what he's given back to the game. Uh, if If we could all sit and listen to Wayne for... Hours on end, we'd all be better for it. And uh, if you get a chance to hear Wayne or see Wayne, uh, take what he says to heart, and we'll all be better people because of it, and our sport will be better as well. I appreciate that, and you can. You can uh, at least get a glimpse of about an hour and a half of uh, my discussion with Wayne on a podcast through URTennis.com. Um, I want to ask you this one here. As coaches, because I've, uh, as a coach, I've been influenced by – you, and I'm sure you've been influenced by other coaches, and I'd be curious to find out what coaches in your life made an impact and in what way. 
that maybe really stand out? Well, I was very lucky growing up, first of all, starting in the beginning. Uh, I didn't want to play tennis. I lived on a farm. I rode a horse every day and uh, uh, worked on the farm. And we took swimming lessons at a home. We didn't have YMCA swim lessons or group swim lessons at a time at a private home on another ranch. And the, these people had a tennis court. And on the, you'd pass the court in the way of the pool. And one day my folks who didn't play tennis got it in their head some way I was going to take a tennis lesson. And I said, no, I'm not going to play that sport. One of those white things all around the Cowboys and Levi's for crying out loud. And and I said, well, do you want to ride your horse system? And I said, yeah, of course. And they said, well, then you better take a tennis lesson. So I did. And one thing that impacted me the rest of my time as a teacher was that my coach uh, made everything you did on the court exciting. Uh, I, 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 didn't know that tennis was a sport. I thought it was kind of a sissy game. But in those days, going to some of the great sports heroes, he would say, you step into the hit as Rocky Marciano steps into punch, Rocky being the heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, you watch the ball as Ralph Kiner, one of the all-time great home runner hitters, watches the pitch. You watch it off the opponent's racket. Uh, and all these little sports analogies, every ball you hit, I couldn't wait to get into the ball to hit. And I went home and practiced against the garage and a gravel driveway. The ball would come off the wall and bounce all kinds of directions. And I, but I still wanted to hit it. it made, he made hitting a ball so exciting. And that was a big, important lesson to me, to make each shot your pupil hits an event, an excitement. And that was really important to me. I had a next coach in high school who uh, was a top player at USC. So I was very lucky to have a full-time faculty member who was a great player. And uh, I learned a lot from him. My coach at Stanford, Bob Rinker, uh, that was Arnold Saul. My coach at Stanford, Bob Rinker, was a great coach in his own way, a different kind of coach, but a good coach, very knowledgeable. But as a coach and watching other coaches, I I learned a ton by watching George Tolley and how George handled himself at USC. Uh, I long time, Glenn Bassett, UCLA, he was hired a month, we were hired within a month of each other. And I wrote him a note, I was hired first. I wrote him and I said, Glenn, I know you're assisting at UCLA, but if you have any guys down there who, uh, you're not looking at anymore and might be interested in a secondary school, let me know. I'm stuck at Stanford. I appreciate you helping get me. And he writes back, yeah, happy to, Dick. And a month later, he's had to coach at UCLA. <laughs> uh, but I, I really enjoyed competing. I would, of course, against uh, George, but I really especially enjoyed my relationship with Glenn Bassett. Uh, he, his teams were great competitors. Uh, I love the way acting the court. I, I hope that our teams, both of our teams, Learn from the way Glenn and I handled, handled our competition. I wasn't a threat and it started out. I mean, we won one point against UCLA. It was a moral victory for Stanford my first few years. But as we got better and finally got into a position where we could play equally with them, it became a great rivalry. I think when I retired, um, UCLA-Stanford record was like 45 wins apiece or something like that, an incredible record, uh, very, very even back and forth. Uh, and I really appreciate and respect the way Glenn handled that that relationship, uh, and uh, it's a friendship that will be there forever, and, and I hope our players feel that because I think we did it in the right way in the uh, most extreme of, of environments. Thanks so much. And I'm just going to ask you maybe, uh, I think you alluded this to earlier. Um, you mentioned that there were some things that changed earlier. You were too product-oriented earlier on or result-oriented, and there were some changes, and you said if it was more of a personal setting, I don't expect you to have to do that. But a question that I, I know, for example, that I've had certain epiphanies or certain times in my coaching career that something just 
it just hit me upside the head with a two by four and I said, you know what, this isn't worth it. I'm going to go this route or I've got to stick to my guns on this because of X, Y, or Z. So what are some, if you can share some major changes in your coaching and why? I think it's more an evolution. I, I don't know that there are any tremendous epiphanies uh, other than I became a better coach when I wasn't result uh, so result-oriented in my approach, more uh, 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 more uh, improvement-oriented. Uh, I'll tell you two stories, the two most two of the greatest ones I've had. I think uh, the story I was going to say was about when I was coaching football and. I was trying to be a tough guy. I barely, I got out of the classroom. I barely had time to take my tie off, put the whistle on my neck, put the cleats on. And we were having a little one-on-one tackling drill. And these are ninth graders and freshmen in high school. And, and I don't think anyone normally naturally likes to be hit or likes hitting someone. But uh, especially at that grade, you have a lot of different sizes. And as one little fellow, Eddie Matias, would, uh, we had a little tackling drill, a whole team standing around and uh, from eight yards away, not not too far, so you're not going to get hurt. Uh, Eddie was, this, I blow the whistle, and one guy would run, and they both run down the line, and one guy would tackle the other guy. Well, Eddie was slipped and fall to the left. Get up, Eddie, do it again. Slip and fall to the right. Last time he did it, slipped and fell backwards. And he's on the back looking up at me, and I'm over Eddie's head yelling every vile word I can think of until I can think of no more. I run out of gas, and all the team is looking around just in silence. And Eddie lies there on his back for a few minutes. And then he holds up his hand, waves at me one finger, and says, F you, Mr. Gould. And I sat there for a minute, and uh, all of a sudden I started cracking up, realizing what he just said, and the team cracked up. And that made me right away realize that you can't be someone you you aren't naturally. Mm. I like to have a good time and, and enjoy my players, and I couldn't just be yelling at someone like that. So that was an epiphany for me. Another time I was giving a private lesson while I was actually in college in a private court. And this little gal, she had came in one lesson a week the last four weeks of summer. She came in for a lesson, and she was a young gal. In those days, the rackets were all big. She was six or seven, and she really had a hard time, not real coordinated, uh, hitting the ball. And, and But she had a great stroke, and I would always try to find ways to, you know, your shoes look great there. I love those shoelaces. Or, gosh, your hair looks nice today. Or that bowl is so cute. Or whatever. Just try to find something good to say, because I couldn't say it really about anything other than her swing. She had a great swing. And finally, it turned out to be her last lesson. She finally connected with the ball and the strings and had a great forehand over the net from a toss ball situation. And and I jumped up and down, and I started clapping, and I forget her name. I wish I'd see her today. And uh, she started, she looked at me like I was crazy, and she started a big smile on her face. She started jumping up and down, and all of a sudden, in midair, she stopped and froze. And she looked down and grabbed. She was so excited, a little puddle of water forming under her. <laughs> she looked at me and she looked at me down and she looked at me again. She ran to the house out oh. the front door. She didn't live at the house and I never saw her again. <laughs> but I think the making the thing as exciting, what you're doing, that was the ultimate for me. And, that, <laughs> and it was really a thrill for me as well. I appreciate you sharing those. Well, uh, we're going to be wrapping up our show here. And before we end, we have about uh, just a couple minutes here. And I just wanted to ask, Dick, is there anything you'd like to share with our, our listeners? Just uh, any, just kind of leave it open, Mike, for yourself to anything you want to share, either about your, about Stanford or about tennis or what you think. Um, well, I, I think 
goal setting sometimes over overdone. I don't like to see really high goals. I, I would ask my players every once in a while, about every fourth year, to put a little card on, ask them several questions about themselves, and one of the things was what are you would be what are your goals in tennis? And every once in a while, someone would say to be the number one player in the world. And you know that really had an impact on me because I just could not see someone waking up and going to shave every morning, looking at themselves in the mirror, and think, "I got to be number one. I got to be number one." You know, you have to be champion of the block before you can be the champion of your team or your city or anything else. So, uh, stepping stone goals, I think, are very, very important. They're easier to measure. You feel better about yourself when you achieve them. And that's our job as a coach to re- make them realize they have done something, even though it seems small at the time. Uh, enjoy yourself with what you're doing. If you're not enjoying it, don't 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 do it. But on the other hand. I think the proof is in the pudding, and I think that's why so few people really leave our possession for our profession. We have a great, great group of coaches out there. People talk about the state of American tennis and about the level of coaching, and I must say that I don't think it's ever been better. We have more coaches who are doing a better job than ever before. Um, uh, I really respect the job Patrick McEnroe did as uh, head of junior development. Um, he he had the guts to do some institute, institute some changes, not all of which were accepted or or really popular, real popular at the start. But he had the guts to do something, to try something. I really respect him for that. Nothing was done without a great deal of thought. And um, and I think Martin Blackman, another player of mine, who's now the player development uh, head, is going to do a great job as well. And, and learned a lot by working with Patrick through some of these times. Uh, it's fun for me to see these guys like. Uh, John and Patrick and Jeff Tarango and some of the others out there broadcasting. I get a kick out of that. Uh, funny thing was, it was only 1983. I went to Wimbledon two years ago, the first time in like 31 years. And the last time I was there was Wimbledon Monday. It was just a couple of days ago in our time now. And uh, I had left the tournament on Friday because we only had tickets for the first week. But in that particular year, we had four Stanford players playing on Monday in the men's quarterfinals that reached at least the quarterfinals in the men's draw. And that was really something to get home and read about and, and miss there. My wife's uh, coached a, tam- a tennis team at Stanford after Title IX, first women's coach. And her pupil, Kathy Jordan, was in the semifinals of Wimbledon, beating Christy Everett to get there. So that was a memorable year for us. And sometimes those things happen, and sometimes they don't. you don't count on them happening. But when they do, I think uh, <laughs> the irony of it all is that we got home and read about it when we were there earlier in the week before it happened. The year before is kind of interesting, too. We were there the year before in 82, and that year we had eight Stanford men reach the final 32. They won two matches in the main draw. And not many Americans doing that nowadays even. So hmm. those are things that times change, I think, is a point. The whole point is times change. And college tennis was a tremendous, had a tremendous impact on the world of tennis in those days and a little bit less of an impact now. So hmm. whether we can ever reach those golden years again, I don't know, because it's a different sport. It's a, it's a truly a worldwide sport now. And and uh, it's not so much American coaching is less, lesser than it was. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that... Uh, we can always improve our coaching and how we're approaching it, but I think that uh, yeah, the rest of the world is much more active in developing players now than they used to be, and that's having an impact on the proportion of Americans that are doing well in the pro tour. Well, I'd like to thank so much for Coach Dick Gould joining us today. Um, and before we head off, uh, and and uh, I invite you to come back and listen to the next podcast, we'll have uh, – Head coach Paul Goldstein, assistant coach Brandon Coop of Stanford. 
Um, I'd like to leave you with a couple thoughts. Um, uh, this year, actually, I challenged uh, my team to uh, to raise the level of what they do. And I asked them, I said, is your normal inspiring? So if somebody's watching you, is what you normally do day in and day out inspiring? And the second thing is, if you always give your best, you'll sometimes play your best and one time be the best. The key is, are you always giving your best? This is Steve Clark and the Coach Steve Clark Show. Thanks for joining us. Let her rip.